we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. So the opioid lawsuits are over and manufacturers and distributors have had to pay out billions of dollars. Has any of it gotten to the victims? I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2020, 54 million U.S. adults were living with chronic pain. Management of non-cancer pain went through a slow evolution starting in 1980, and it started to include opioids. While opioids are indicated in many types of pain, they carry the potential risk of addiction and overdose. The National Institute on Drug Abuse data in 2019 revealed that 21 to 29% of patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain misuse them. Between 8 and 12% of people using an opioid for chronic pain develop an opioid use disorder. In 1995, the pharmaceutical companies insisted that their new opioid pain relievers, particularly OxyContin, were safe and effective and not addictive. That turned out not to be true. They had no regard for the people who were the ultimate consumers. There is an email in the records of the distributor for uh, one of the opiates, and it came out in a trial last year in West Virginia. And they described the addicted consumers as pillbillies and referred to OxyContin as hillbilly heroin. These distributors sent massive quantities of OxyContin to small country communities way out in the country that was clearly disproportionate to the population. Now we have the settlement, but the question is, who's gonna control these billions of dollars? Several states have created councils that vary in their makeup, but they generally include health professionals, law enforcement, and victims of addiction. But we wonder, where will the money go? I am so honored to have as my guest, who will share her expertise in addiction medicine, as well as public policy. Dr. Molly Rutherford is the founder, medical director, and physician at the Bluegrass Family Wellness Clinic. It's a direct primary care clinic in Kentucky. She is board certified in family medicine and addiction medicine, and she has a holistic approach to her patient's physical health. And she has more than a decade of experience treating opiate addiction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Molly Rutherford. Thank you. Thank you for having me, doctor. Well, what I just want to start off with is kind of a quick overview of what is opioid addiction? Opioid addiction is, uh, well, there's opioid dependence and then there's opioid addiction. Um, I like to distinguish the two 
because um, addiction, by by definition, in a very easy definition, would be to continue to partake of a substance or to continue a behavior despite um, negative consequences. So to me, that defines addiction to any substance. Now, so so many people have dealt with addiction to opioids, especially, you know, in the past few decades. Um, but, you know, we're familiar with addiction to nicotine, alcohol, gambling, things like that. Um, opioid dependence um, is treated similarly, uh, maybe too similarly, in my opinion, but it's more of a physical dependence where someone who's been treated for years for chronic pain, when they try to abruptly stop those medications, they have withdrawal symptoms and it's it's very unpleasant. So you can see physical dependence to many medications. It's really, really profound in, and very like the withdrawal from opioids is very um, uncomfortable uh, compared to some other medicines that we develop physical dependence on, such as um, SSRIs, believe it or not. Um, and then benzodiazepines are also quite hard to come off of. You get physically dependent on those as well. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it, it's not so black and white, but, um, that's how I, I like to explain it. Well, that's a good explanation. Now, how did so many people start getting opioids for regular pain? Maybe just go into, you know, how people say, well, pain is pain. And if it's cancer, it doesn't matter. Or if it's back pain, it doesn't matter. Well, does it matter? And what's the difference of these kinds of pain? Well, it's interesting. I I was in med school when they started and residency when the, the movement of... Um, the pain, what I would call the pain movement, where there was this narrative created somewhere. And I think it was, there were many people involved. I think um, the government was involved, the FDA, um, the pharmaceutical companies were probably involved in some way. And then the medical establishment, the hospital systems, the medical schools were involved. And um there was this narrative that we were not adequately treating pain, um, specifically chronic pain, more, but even acute pain. So um, I remember learning that, you know, uh, being told we were, doctors were basically opiophobic and we weren't using them enough. And there was a study, it was more like a letter published in the New England Journal of Medicine where a few patients were followed, I don't remember the number, in the hospital, and they found that a very small number of patients who were treated with opioids for pain in the hospital went on to develop addiction. Um, but it was a ridiculous, it wasn't even a, a, a study, it was more, it was very, it was more, it was an observation study, so it wasn't, there were no controls, and it was not a typical setting, obviously. Um, and so they took that, ran with it. The pharmaceutical companies ran with that saying, oh, you know, addiction is very rare. We, you, we worry too much about prescribing these medicines. And then all of a sudden, um, everybody's probably seen Dope Sick and all of the movies that are made about it. But um, 
we're we're being flooded with pharmaceutical reps in in our residency program. Is it telling us how these medicines are completely safe and they're not addictive? And um, as long as you're dosing them for pain, there was this narrative also that as long as the person is truly in pain, they can't, they're not going to get addicted. Um, and then a few years later, it was clear that these short-acting opioids were indeed causing addiction. So they came out with the longer-acting, like MS-Cotton and then OxyContin, and they were claiming that people were less likely to get addicted to those because of how they were uh, longer-acting and and controlled release. Um, so it was it was a it was a process, and I'm I'll be honest, I'm not sure who kicked it off, you know, who's to blame, but I think it was, it was multifactorial. It was, it was everybody. And, um, we, we definitely overprescribed them. Um, interestingly, when I was, I trained in Virginia, we, in my residency program, we had some old school doctors who had worked in the ER and they, they did not buy it at all. They just, we did not prescribe opioids in my, in my residency program. So when I moved out to, Kentucky, um, rural Kentucky, and like basically every patient was on an opioid and a benzo and, you know, <laughs> in some cases a muscle relaxer, I'm not sure how they were functioning, but um, it was kind of a shock to me because I, the way that I was trained was that, you know, the, they, they were making a mistake. The hospitals were making a mistake these um, pain specialists who were encouraging us to prescribe these more liberally were making a mistake. And um, it, when I, when it was a wake up call for me when I moved out here and I realized, Oh no, uh, a lot of people bought this. Um, they believed it. And, and now we have a problem. You know, what's really sad doctor is now I'm really old school. I trained way before you that something like back pain, it's very common, the most common cause of pain in the country. And, you know, many people have these physical jobs that it turns out opioids aren't really even the best treatment for it because they don't get to the root of the problem. That mm -hmm. most of the time it's inflammatory. What do you do for inflammatory problems? things like ibuprofen or various other kind of NSAIDs. And so it it almost like it 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 skipped ahead, like straight to opioids and don't even use something that would help cut the inflammation. It's it's very sad, very sad that Yes. It, you know, oh, and oh, it, very sad. And it was almost like what's happening now with some other things where it becomes more political or cover your butt than actually thinking about the individual patient because everybody was all nervous because there had been some malpractice suits because people were undertreated. And so we go mm -hmm. from undertreatment to overtreatment and not even looking at the core problem. Yes. Yes, exactly. I agree. That was that was an issue out here. I remember that being an, a, a driving force for doctors prescribing opioids, the 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 worry about malpractice, and then also the patient satisfaction scores. So you know, if you're working a doctor working for a hospital system, I don't worry about that anymore because I'm independent. But 
if you're working for a hospital system, you get these, you know, these reviews periodically, and and many of them include these satisfaction scores from patients that you've seen. So if you decline to give, you know, a 22 year old that has back pain, if you if you decide not to give that person an opioid, which would be completely justified because you know, most of the time it's they injured themselves and they need some physical therapy. So many people are overweight right now. We have a huge obesity problem in this in this country. When when you're obese, your your core strength is is not good. So you're just very prone to injuring your back. Um and so you know that that influenced doctors to just go ahead and write that prescription because it takes less time and then they don't have to worry about getting a, you know, a one or a zero on their review. You know, what this reminded me of when you're talking about these reviews, and sometimes I think about the silliness, somebody who was in risk management for a big system who shall go nameless was talking about getting dinged, the nurses getting dinged on a review because the pillows weren't soft enough. And it's like, <laughs> what have we come to? The poor nurse, you know, is <laughs> trying to take care of you physically and give you the right pain medicines and give you the right antibiotics and make sure the IVs are running properly, et cetera. And <laughs> she's dinged because the pillow wasn't soft enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of like sometimes we have to take these reviews with a grain of salt and not exactly. react. And that seems to be what happened. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. So now we've gone from legitimate, if you can call them that, opioids, things that come direct from a pharmaceutical manufacturer, to now we have these, I don't know if it's adults, it seems like we're always hearing about the kids, who are taking these fake prescription pills that have been laced with fentanyl and mm-hmm. fentanyl so cheap to manufacture. I mean, in your practice, what can you do about that? Do you see people who've had that happen or how do you tell people don't buy it? Oh yes. Well, by the time they come to me, they're already, they're coming for help with addiction. So but many of them are surprised that the that is it's fentanyl in their system. So I'll have people come in saying they were taking, you know, Percocets off the street. Well, that's that's what they're told it is. Um, in reality, it's it's usually a mixture of many things, including fentanyl. And you know, the government and all its wisdom. Um, there's some hoop that you have to go through as just like an independent doctor like me to even get urine testing for fentanyl. So we, I can't even get those tests. So I have to, you know, at point of care, I'll do a a 12 panel urine drug screen to try to figure out what the patient had been on. Usually they're sitting in a room in withdrawal at this point. And uh, if, if nothing shows up other than sometimes, you know, MDMA will show up or meth, um, but no opioids show up, then I can conclude with, you know, a reasonable certainty that they thought they were having Percocet or they thought they were getting heroin and they were, they were actually getting fentanyl. So, 
Um, as far as people, you know, going out and buying pills to treat their pain here, I, I don't see that as much anymore. Um, <clears throat> it wouldn't surprise me if people are doing that just because I know many of the pain management specialists are very intolerant of anything else showing up in a urine, um, and, and, you know, abandoning patients because, because of, uh, you know, THC in the urine or, or whatnot. So it wouldn't surprise me if that's happening, but I don't think that's the major factor right now. I think it's, it's mostly people that just, you know, started out using some weed and then they tried, found some, some pills and grandma's medicine cabinet. And then they liked how the, they felt. And then eventually they end up buying these street pills. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's a real problem. And, and after the break, I'd like to go into what you do for treatment and what are some of the drugs and, and are we loosening up on who can treat and primary care doctors treat all these sorts of things we'll, we'll go into in the section after the break. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. Right now, I'd just like to talk to you a bit about one of my favorite things, Cofix RX. This is a nasal spray, and it helps destroy or at least cut down the replication of bacteria and viruses in the nose, because about 95% of how we get sick, we breathe these respiratory germs in through our nose. And Cofix, spray it up your nose and try to kill the germs there before they get all the way down to your respiratory tract. I like to think of it like an airbag in a car. You can reduce the impact reduce the number of virus in your body, and hopefully you won't get quite so sick. Nothing's foolproof, but this really helps a lot. I like to use it when I go out to the big box stores or grocery store where I'm around people I don't know, give a little squirt of Cofix in the nose and help kill any germs that I might have picked up. Lots of doctors and pharmacists recommend it, and you can get it at a lot of health stores. And you can get it right on our website. We've got a little Cofix RX box and you can click it on, read more about it and see if it's right for you. Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? Crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to americaoutloud.shop. That's americaoutloud.shop and use coupon code OUTLOUD. Use CofixRx because it works. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our customers will tell you how our products have made a difference for them. From improving immune health and supporting gut health, to reducing the appearance of wrinkles and even improving mind, mood, and energy. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. 
For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. Before the break, I was going to ask Dr. Molly Rutherford about what she does to treat people who come see her with a opiate use disorder problem. So doctor, what do you do? What do you march the patient through? I use primarily buprenorphine or buprenorphine naloxone. Um, I have a pretty full practice, so I don't have very many new patients. Um, And because I'm not insurance-based, I'm not as busy as a lot of the facilities that are completely devoted to treating opioid use disorder because I also do primary care. So, but, um, you know, I've had a couple of new people recently and things have changed. I still use buprenorphine, but I've had to change how we do the induction because most of these patients are on fentanyl. Um, and and it, it does work really well because it alleviates the withdrawal. Um, occasionally I'll get patients who have gone to an inpatient rehab who don't want to be on buprenorphine or methadone. Those are also called, um, methadone and buprenorphine are opioids. So they are what we would call opioid, um, replacement. In other words, it's, um, it's still bind. They still bind to opioid receptors, and that's why the withdrawal goes away. But they also just keep somebody stable so that they don't have cravings, and they do work very well. But some people just don't want to be dependent on another medicine, or you know, they they just don't like the idea of being on an opioid. Period. Which I don't blame. I don't blame them. Um, so in those cases, you can use um, a once a month medication called um what it's it's basically an injectable naltrexone i can't think of i don't want to say the brand name anyway but um they they would come in maybe they maybe they've gone to rehab so they they don't have withdrawal anymore um but they're worried about going back into their old environment and using again so we would give them this blocker it's basically an opioid blocker that would um, keep the cravings down and then also be protective if they would use. Um, so those are the main things that that we use currently. Um, and they're they're fairly effective as long as people, you know, take the medicine. Um, it, with addiction, there's always relapse. Relapses, I, I don't want to say inevitable because I, I've met people who haven't used in 20 years, decades. Um, I will say that many of the people who have long-term success tend to have some sort of faith uh, in God. They believe that God healed their addiction. And many of them um, become get involved in recovery. So they get involved in helping other people, whether it just, you know, be as a sponsor or they actually, you know, get licensed to be a counselor or um, do peer support at recovery centers, for example. Well, what about people who don't want to touch any drug? Does psychotherapy work? Does group therapy work? Acupuncture? What do you do? 
Those things work. Absolutely. Um, It's very difficult with opioids because getting through the withdrawal is, is difficult. Um, And so people are more likely to relapse in my, in my experience. And then um, science supports this also. It's just harder for them to, not use because they're so they're miserable and it's not just physically it's mentally there's so much anxiety and insomnia when you're in withdrawal um so i do think therapy is an important part of recovery but in my experience it's it it's better done at first at least in an inpatient setting or um you know where somebody goes away for 90 days to six months and they're really immersed in all kinds of recovery programs learning about you know what what may have caused them to use drugs in the first place because because people who've had trauma in their past or or um people with untreated mental illness like anxiety depression adhd bipolar there, there are risk factors for people who are, you know, going to be more likely to develop an addiction. So, you know, I'm not against those programs. I do, I am glad that m- more of those programs are offering medicine alongside of it. Uh, just because I think it's, I do, I've, I've been prescribing buprenorphine long enough to realize that it, it's very effective. Um, I, but I also know many, many people just don't like that idea. You know, like, why would I replace one opioid with another, even though it's not exactly the same thing? You know, it's really like taking a medicine once a day versus spending your entire day figuring out where you're going to get your next dose, committing crimes in order to afford your next dose. So it's, it's, it truly is recovery when someone is on the medicine. I believe that. Um, but then, you know, of course, there are people who who don't take it correctly, who abuse it, who sell it. You know, those are real problems. I don't focus a lot of my energy on that just because I feel like that's not really my job. That's, you know, if somebody's selling their medicine, that's the job of law enforcement to figure that out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of treatment now, and you're in Kentucky, so this works out real well for me to ask you this. There's a psychedelic drug, I think you ibogaine, that in mm-hmm. Kentucky they want to test it as a treatment for opioid use disorder. Have you been involved in that or know anything about that? No, I haven't been involved. I, I know about it. I know I well, I just learned that Kentucky was going to study it from you. Thank you for that information. <laughs> I I have I've I've kind of disconnected myself from the um advocacy part of things, anything involving the government or bureaucracy or our medical establishment organizations, because, um, yeah, the COVID experience just, I don't, I, I, I'm having trust issues. I'll just leave it there. Um, you and a lot of other people. (laughs) Yeah, I'll just leave it there. Um, so I haven't really been involved in any of those committees or anything. I'm just kind of like, no, thanks. Anytime I get asked now, but, um, 
I did, I read the articles and I read about this, the, the medicine and, you know, I'm all about, let's study these, these promising treatments. I think that's a great idea. Um, my concerns with this one is that it looks like it's, it, I mean, it looks amazingly promising in that you only have to do one treatment in many cases, and then it takes away all the withdrawal and the cravings, you know, for months to years. But it looks like there, you know, it needs to be highly supervised. So they've relaxed the the qualification standards or the requirements to prescribe buprenorphine, which, which I think is fine. It's, it's pretty safe. It's, it's really not difficult to get people started on that medicine and to keep them on it and to monitor them. It's, it's really not any more of a bit, you know, it's not harder than treating some of the other chronic illnesses that we treat like uh, diabetes and so forth. So I'm fine with them relaxing that, but I could see this being a problem that, you know, you don't just want any, any physician. It's, it's going to require some training, I think, and some experience before a physician like me, for example, would be comfortable administering it. So that is one of my concerns. Well, it's interesting that there's all this focus on psychedelics now, I remember there was a time uh, in anesthesia, you didn't use ketamine on people for anything, adults, it was something on children because of its psychological effects. And now they're talking about legalizing mushrooms and all these other things. And I have all these mixed feelings about substituting one thing for another. And if you really don't know what they ultimately do to your brain, Oh, I'm kind of watch out. I I kind of yes. get the willies thinking about mm-hmm. what these things can do to people long term. But it's an interesting concept. Interesting since people consider Kentucky ground zero and they're going to get a lot of this settlement money, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, mm-hmm. that that's where they've decided to test it. The yes. The other test I wanted to talk to you about, because you were talking about people that might have a propensity, they've come out with some DNA test of some sort that's supposed Mm -hmm. to predict addiction. What do you think of that? Yeah, I saw that too. It's called the avert D test or something. Um, I I honestly don't see how that's going to be very helpful um, for a few reasons. Um, So, you know, I have a master's in public health. So I I do have a epidemiology background as well. So I understand what it, what sensitivity and specificity mean. And if you look at this particular test, the sensitivity is about 82 to 83%. And the specificity is about 79 to 80%. So that, that's not, that's really not good. Um, you're going to end up with many, many false positives, many false negatives. And Right now, the screening that we have, the questionnaires that we have when we're um, trying to decide whether or not to start an opioid on someone are pretty good. They, they work pretty well in terms of gauging, oh, is this person at high risk to become addicted? Um, so I feel like we have, I just I just don't see this test being very helpful, to be honest. Um it's, it's not that hard to take a history. Hey, um, you know, you're about to have surgery. 
have you ever been addicted to opioids? Because some people, I have patients who they get so nervous when they have to have a surgery because they don't want to be in pain, yet they they don't want to take any pain pills. And so, you know, just asking that, have you ever had one? Okay, well, let's try Let's try to get you through with ibuprofen and, and some other medicines rather than, than trying these opioids. Um, or just, you know, do you smoke? Do you drink? Uh, what about family? Does addiction run in your family? Uh, what was your childhood like? You, there, there are a lot of things that you can ask before you even start the medicine. And then if you monitor them closely, so if you, yeah, you don't want to send them home like we were, I don't know, 10 years ago, surgeons were sending people home with like 90 days worth of pills, you know, just a ton of hydrocodone and Percocet. I think mainly because they just didn't want to be bothered, to be honest. I hate to sound cynical, but um, that, that's, a, right. that's, a, that's a disaster. Like you really want to um, send home with just a few days of medicine and then have them follow up with them though quickly. Like if, if the doctor himself or herself cannot call the patient, have somebody on staff call the patient and check in after a few days and then involve the primary care physician. You know, I, I, I understand primary care in the system is, is not like how I do it. So a lot of primary care physicians are overwhelmed and they don't, they feel like they don't need more things to do. I understand that and sympathize with that. But, you know, in my case, I just, I just make sure people know, well, you're having your surgery tomorrow, call me in two days and, and I'll even talk to the surgeon and say, I know this patient's going to need pain meds. I'm going to tell the patient to take their regular dose of Suboxone or buprenorphine rather, and you, um, you give them a couple days and then they can follow up with me after that. And if they need more pain medicine, I'll manage it. And, well, that, you know, the that surgeon... sounds like a good plan, but I yeah. think you preface the whole thing with you aren't an ordinary practice. You have mm -hmm. taken the time to spend with patients and these poor schnooks who are in these big systems are given, what, seven minutes, if they're lucky, 10 minutes with a patient and don't have the time to delve in like you do. And I, yeah. I it's a real shame. And I want to get into that in our next segment, because I want to have your opinion on what you think should be done with these billions and billions of dollars that have come out of the settlement and uh, that they're currently distributing around the states and trying to figure out what to do with it. And also, we'll get into a little about this issue of trust in the system. So we'll talk about all that after the break. Right now, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We have our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa, and you can hear the Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. with an encore at 10 p.m. Eastern and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. You can also listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. One of my favorite parts is all shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy. 
bookmark americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. One of the fun things about the show is that it's a different doctor every night. I'm on on Mondays, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesday, Dr. Peter McCulloch. Thursday, Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And if that's not enough for you, we've got Nurses Out Loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So lots of medicine, lots of politics, sometimes more than the other, but you will enjoy it either way. Thanks again for listening. When God, through his grace and mercy, gave us free will, the will of the people was to live freely. To that end, we fight for the liberty of all at a time when global tyranny threatens us as never before in mankind's history. This vision is manifest at AmericaOutloud.news, a site for all who cherish free will and freedom. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. Before the break, we were talking with Dr. Molly Rutherford about addiction, treating addiction, treating dependence, the difference between the two medicines to use. And everybody's heard there's been a big opioid settlement, and it's with the manufacturers as well as distributors and even the drug stores, and they've come out with these rules and where the money should go. And uh, the different states have created these councils that will have all sorts of different folks, apparently, who are going to figure it out. This sort of dovetails into something Dr. Rutherford kind of not so quietly referred to is kind of losing trust in these government councils, but they're supposed to decide what to do with the money. I mean, in some cases in, in Kentucky, which a lot of people call, call ground zero, they're getting a huge sum of money. And who do you trust to distribute it? Where do you think it should be distributed? Go for it. 
Well, I can tell you it's not going to come to me because I don't bill Medicare and Medicaid and I don't participate in insurance. Um, so it's very unlikely to come to, you know, a for-profit business. But I think um, I think research is a good place for the money to go. Um, I think, you know, hopefully it'll reach some of these families who have just been devastated and heartbroken from losing, you know, loved ones. Um, I don't know how that would work logistically, but that makes sense to me. And then uh, really prevention is the best. If we can channel a lot of the money to preventing people, young people, for example, um, from going down that road of addiction, um, th that would be great. Um, I think reform, I would love, you know, there to be some reform. I would love for there to be some review and some reform of how um how we got here you know so so how did we end up over prescribing these opioids to all these people and then what happened when the legislature and the government in Kentucky got involved and decided you know they were going to make all kinds of rules to squeeze uh the pain pill supply well everybody started using heroin and actually overdoses increased. So, you know, I don't know if there could be a way to just review all that and um, come up with a plan to prevent that from happening again with other meds, with other situations that might be a good place to put some of the money. Um, well, one thing, yeah. I, you know, and I think you're looking at the famous root cause analysis that all too often, it seems these days, nobody seems interested in doing anymore. It's Band-Aid, Band-Aid, Band-Aid. I just read an article that kind of gave me the willies of uh, somebody in Boston who invented some sensor to put in toilets that if there was no movement after two and a half minutes, bells would go off and they would assume they're in there having a drug overdose. And I thought, <laughs> kind of sounds That's like... That's a nightmare. That's a nightmare <laughs> for, for constipated people. <laughs> I mean, 1984 hits the toilets. I mean, you can see that the person, obviously, you know, they have good intentions, but it seems... Like what you're saying is looking at the root causes of how we even got here should be prime importance. Instead, it looks like we're, you know, having a Narcan spray in every pot. And mm -hmm. it that just seems to be looking at it backwards. I you know. Yeah. We don't I mean, want people to die, but no. <laughs> If they can incentivize more doctors, more therapists, it, you know, I think I think that would be a good use of the money to incent, you know, 
one of the reasons that many primary care doctors in the system don't do this type of work is because it it is time consuming. And if you've ne- if you've never done it, just the thought of it is kind of overwhelming. Um, and so, but it but once you get your feet wet and realize, oh, you know, actually these patients are my favorite patients because they their lives go from total disaster to wow, you know, completely functioning, high functioning. And so it's it's beautiful. It's wonderful to be a part of that when they do well, you know. But I think maybe, maybe to incentivize more doctors to just um get some training and then think about incorporating that into their practice. You know, the problem is, is I think 75 to 80% of primary care physicians in Kentucky, like everywhere else are employed by these huge hospital systems and it's just getting through the administration and, you know, they want to make money. So they're going to try to find a way to, even if you're giving them money, they're going to try to find a way to make a profit from that, um, not that I'm disparaging profit because I, like I said, I have a for-profit business, but I don't know. It's just, I don't know how it's going to go. You can probably hear the cynicism in my voice because it's just, I've, I've witnessed it since I became a doctor 20 years ago, you know, um, them coming in, the government coming in, trying to fix things and make things better, fixing problems that they caused and then just making it worse, you know? So (laughs) I'll be surprised if they get it right this time. Well, you know, (laughs) there's this piece of me that wishes you would go back and sacrifice yourself to another task force. And I don't know if you all know, Dr. Rutherford was on a pain treatment guidelines task force for the government. And I'm sure that's what helped sour her on the whole process. (laughs) But um, we need voices to speak up and uh, unfortunately, voices like yours and many of our listeners, many of our doctors who talk on the program, they try to poo-poo even before you've had a chance to say your piece and spell out why some of these steps that the government proposes are wrong. And so many of them, to me, seem like the easy way out. It's like just, well, we'll just give you uh, some Narcan and then all will be well. Well, no, it's not. The person should have never been there to overdose in the first place. I see ads on TV where they have, they're teaching kids with a CPR dummy how to give Narcan and, and how to tell that your friend is overdosed. And I mean, that's all well and good, but where are right. counselors or somebody to say, what problems is it that the teens are having or that adults are having that cause them to want to overuse drugs? And we all know right. we've all had soporifics. Who hasn't had a drink? You know, I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of people don't, but, you know, people drink, people smoke. People want things to satisfy whatever these physiologic cravings are that everybody has. I don't Mm -hmm. know. To to me, it seems like counseling would be pre-addiction counseling would be a good place to go. 
<laughs> yeah, I think so. And then also, I, I think there's a role in the family with the parents. You know, my kids are involved in athletics, which I'm thankful for that because they they get tested regularly. But these um, these kids are starting to vape uh, nicotine really, really young, middle school. And that's a gateway. I'm sorry. People say, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. It probably is sort of, but in my experience, nicotine is the gateway drug. That's what these, that's when, what people get started with. And, um, and then once they figure out it's, it's okay, it's not a big deal. They move on and they go, then they go to weed and then they maybe go to alcohol and then they eventually end up at pills and whatnot. Um, so, as a in my house, you know, we've always been really open with my kids. We I keep nicotine urine screens here. I keep um, urine drug screens here. You know, I, I've always been very open with them. Like I'm, I will test you. Like don't think that I won't, and I'll do it randomly. And they just know. Like I have a 15 year old. He'll go out, and I'll be like, okay, so did you vape? Did you do? And he's like, mom, just just go ahead and test me. He gets annoyed with me asking him every time he goes out. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think it's work and it's hard, but, you know, just staying involved and just being, being that annoying parent too, you know? Um, and these felt honestly, though, I have to say the data is showing that these kids, the younger kids, this Gen Z, the younger Gen Z years are not really using drugs and alcohol as much. And it, it's probably because they're getting dopamine spikes all day from their cell phones. You know, that's that's my theory. That's not science, by the way. That's my theory. <laughs> well, that's very but. interesting because <laughs> the whole cell phone, social media thing, that, that's a whole nother conversation itself. Are people addicted to that? And, and then people getting drugs over TikTok, I guess it was, that oh, were, yeah. were yeah. there finding drugs. I It's such a mixed bag, but I suppose it's better to get your dopamine hit from a cell phone social media than it is, you know, from narcotics that could be laced with deadly drugs. Now, I have right. to say this as an anesthesiologist. So we're talking about fentanyl. Now, it's a drug used in general anesthetic. It's used in the hands of anesthesiologists. It came out when I was a resident. It was a boon to anesthesia because it was potent and short-acting, and you could reverse it. So there's a big difference. I don't want people to be scared when they're going to surgery and they hear right. the word fentanyl. It's you know one of the best things that ever happened to anesthesia. But that's like so many drugs. They were invented for a purpose in medicine. And then they get abused and then they get a bad name and it scares people. When I right. was in Boston, when the movie Coma came out and the operating room that was uh, rigged up to kill people, well, I guess it didn't kill them. It just put them in a coma so they could steal their kidneys for transplant. Uh, it was operating room eight. 
and at night for our emergencies and where I was a resident roommate was the room that was closest to the nurse's station. So that's why we used it for emergencies. We actually had to put something over the number roommate because patients <laughs> would see it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So yeah. <laughs> we, we, you know, we do have to be careful. You don't want to scare people out of using drugs that are good for you or allowing doctors to use drugs that are good for you just because some creeps have tainted it for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. Very, there's got to be a balance. And it just seems like we're not in America, especially we're not very good at that. You know, we swing well, the pe pendulum too far in the other direction. Well, I'm going to let you finish out this uh, short time in this segment. Speaking of swinging that pendulum and swinging the pendulum for too much government control, give me your two-minute rant on government control. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the, the medical system, basically the destruction of medicine started with with government control, it probably goes back to the Flexner, Flexner report, but but uh, I'll go, I'll go back to the '60s when when they decided to um, to start Medicare, and then it, it followed that you know doctors no longer charged their patients. They decided to bill insurance directly or bill Medicare for their services. Well, over time, it just eroded the doctor-patient relationship, in my opinion. And I just think that that ruined it, that ruined things. Like there, and now there are all these middlemen involved that are just making money off of the what we call the cartel, which is just our huge healthcare system that does not really keep anybody healthy. Um, and, you know, they, they just keep coming out with these fixes every year. Oh, we don't have enough money to give doctors a raise for Medicare reimbursement. Okay, we're going to cap it. I mean, every year it's coming before Congress again. The fact that they're going to have to cut reimbursement to doctors for Medicare. Well, how long do they think doctors are going to be able to accept Medicare patients in that scenario? And And so what ends up happening is then the doctor has to see instead of the usual, you know, reasonable, probably 20 patients a day. Now they're up to seeing 40 patients a day, 50 patients a day, just to keep their doors open because the reimbursement of the insurance companies pretty much follows suit. Um, you know, they follow the Medicare reimbursements. So then you have doctors looking for money elsewhere. So all of a sudden they're getting incentivized to give experimental injections that are harmful and that are ineffective to make extra money. You know, just it, it's, uh, I just, I haven't seen very many government interventions in the practice of medicine or healthcare that have been helpful. I'm trying to think of one. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I think you said it all and speak for a lot of people, both patients and physicians, that when you sit down and look at it, what good has the government wrought? And we have to get back to looking at people as individuals, doctors as individuals, nurses, patients, and come to a better way to take care of all of us. 
Dr. Rutherford, you are a gem. Um, do you have a website that people, there's a lot of people who might be near you, and I realize you're kind of booked, but uh, is there a website? I know you work on other wellness things too, um, so yes. people can just check you out. Yes, I do. It's um, bluegrassfamilywellness.com. So uh, bluegrass family wellness, all spelled just in a row, no dashes or anything.com. And actually, I do have two nurse practitioners, part-time nurse practitioners that have joined me. And one of them just passed her A4M functional medicine test. So we're able, it, it's more integrative. We're doing more integrative medicine now. You know, we're not, we're, we're using some, some supplements instead of medicines when it's appropriate. Um, the, our main goal is really just to help people be healthy through their lifestyle. So whenever possible, we, we try not to, to put people on medicines, but you know, it's not some, some people need them. So, um, it's a good mix. It's a good balance. So we, we definitely have openings right now. Well, good. And next time you come on the show, see, I'm assuming you'll say yes. I'd like to talk to you more about your whole wellness program. And and uh, there's so many things in there that a lot of people could learn from. But that has to be a whole nother hour. So you've got to come back again. Oh, I'd love to come back. I oh. always enjoy it. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We've changed our website. It looks wonderful. We have trending cloud. It's easy to find where you can send an email to ask questions of the host or the guests, and we'll get an answer back to you. We have our AmericaOutloud.shop that has books and products that take you forever to go through all the stuff that's on the website and get discounts on the products. So it's just great. Check out the new website and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And like I always say, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.